Good evening. It's good to be with you again. I think I was here in September, I believe. Um, it's good to be back. Last time I promised I'd try to bring my wife. Well, I failed in my promise, but I brought my mother. So, you know, <laughs> so they flew in from Indiana for Thanksgiving. And so she's, I preached the sermon this morning at Emmanuel, and she said she didn't mind hearing it twice. So she, uh, she came with me uh, this, this evening. So I bring you greetings from Emmanuel Presbyterian Church. And it's a great to show the, the fellowship and unity we have as the body of Christ, even across rivers, uh, as we worship and hear from God's word together. Our text for this evening is coming to come from Exodus. Uh, last time I was here, I told you I was preaching through the uh, book of Exodus, and I'm still doing that. And we are in the middle, at a mail, of the series on the Ten Commandments. And we have come to the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal. So that will be our focus tonight. And believe it or not, this will be an Advent-themed sermon, but it will be focused on this command, uh, Thou shalt not steal, from Exodus chapter 20. And for context, I will read the, uh, the entire of the Ten Commandments, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray as we seek God's face in his word. Father, as we reflect on uh, your commandments, Lord, which you revealed to your people at Mount Sinai, Lord, may you convict us where conviction is needed. May you heal us where there are wounds binding. And may you build us up in the gospel of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So the first time I remember stealing was when I was a a young kid who had a, a lemonade stand. And I, in the process of this lemonade stand, I was selling mostly actually sodas for a quarter, and I, over the course of this stand, I got a lot of quarters, 
and I didn't quite know what to do with all these quarters, and my mother told me if I brought her for my quarters, she would exchange them for dollar bills, which would be a little bit easier to handle and take to buy the Lego sets, which I dearly wanted at the time. And so I did that. I exchanged my dollar bills, I mean my quarters for dollar bills. But then one day, while my mother was taking a nap, I discovered in the back of our cabinet in the kitchen a jar just full of quarters. And I thought, what if I took four of these quarters and came to my mom and said, hey, I have four more quarters, could I exchange these for a dollar bill? Now, my mom was asleep at the time, taking a much-needed nap, but I got those four quarters and I marched right into the bedroom and tapped her on the shoulder and woke her up and said, hey, mom, I found four more quarters, Uh, could I exchange them for a dollar? And to get me off her back so she could go back to sleep, she rolled over, groaning, pulled out her wallet and gave me a dollar bill. And I walked out again with my ill-gotten gains. And I thought, wow, that was pretty easy. What if I could do it with more quarters? And so I went back to the jar and got eight quarters this time and went in and repeated the process. And I wish I could say it stopped there. But over the course of that nap, I think I converted and stole somewhere between 10 and $20 worth of quarters, which to me at the time seemed like a princely sum, and that money was quickly converted into a coveted Lego set. Now, over the years, the guilt of this incident wore on me that I had gotten away with something and had stolen this, you know, what at the time seemed quite a bit, uh, quite a large amount of money, um, really ate at me until eventually I came and confessed the sin to my mother years later. Now, I, as I remember it, I also then reimbursed her for the amount I had stolen, but she says she doesn't remember uh, that part of it. But, uh, but it, what's interesting about that incident, which I think it highlights is something important about the nature of stealing. Because in taking this, in in embezzling, you could say, from my mother, it wasn't just about taking stuff which didn't belong to me. It was a violation of a relationship that I had with my mother. And those of you who have been, had stolen things stolen from you, know how much the, the, the feeling of being robbed doesn't just have to do with the loss of stuff. We lose stuff all the time, right? You drop your cell phone and break its screen and you're upset about that. Or something, you lose something and you're upset about that. But that's very different from the feelings, like if somebody steals your cell phone or somebody takes something or robs your house. You don't feel personally violated when you break your cell phone or, as I did, walk into the ocean with it and still in your pocket. Right? You don't feel personally violated by that. But when somebody steals from you, you feel like that person has disregarded you as a person. There's a feeling of a violation of the relationship that we should have with our fellow human beings. It's not just a matter of stuff. When somebody steals from us, we see they're viewing us not truly as human beings worthy of regard, but as objects worthy of violation. And this is all the more when such theft is done legally. Those of you who have been unjustly sued or, have, or feel other types of where something is morally wrong but protected by law know how even more the feeling of violation happens because then the law is on the side of those who are doing the unjust actions. 
Now, most young children have an intuitive sense of a right to private property. You know, what are the the first word that most children learn is what? No. Well, the first is no, and the second is mine. Right? They have an intuitive sense that there are things which rightfully belong to them. And they'll quickly apply the title to mine to anything they desire in the moment, even if such things don't actually belong to them, or but belong to someone else. And they have little compunction about forcefully acquiring their precious uh, mine from someone who they think unjustly has it. You see, the Bible has an understanding that there is such a thing as private property. In order to steal something, it has to rightfully have belonged to somebody else. It's not stealing something if you take something that does not belong to somebody else. But the Bible teaches that there is such a thing as stealing. There are things that are properly regarded as belonging to you and properly regarded as belonging to someone else. And that's a relationship that we're called to honor. But ultimately, one of the most basic principles in Scripture is that ultimately, the reason why we can say, this is yours, you know, this is mine, is because ultimately everything is a gift and belongs to the Creator of all, to God. All things ultimately belong to God. Earlier in Exodus, God will tell the people of Israel that all the earth is mine. And because the earth is his, that is why he is about to give Israel this promised land. It's his to give. And so he will give it to the people of Israel. Psalm 24, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. All that exists properly belongs to God. And He gives to us for our use from His bounty. And the Bible teaches that the category of our possessing and controlling the gifts He gives us is that of of a steward. A steward in uh, ancient society was often a, a faithful servant or even a slave who was entrusted with the care and management of his master's property. Stewards were often very powerful and influential, but nothing they had or controlled was ultimately their own, but they were to manage and use the property in their control on behalf and for the benefit of their master's purposes. And so it is for us. Everything that God gives to us, we are to use in accordance with our master's purpose, his design in giving the gifts to us. We see this in creation. God creates man and places him in the garden and he gives him a commission. He says, I'm giving these things to you with a purpose. I'm giving you a commission. As Genesis records the creation of Adam and Eve, God says to these newly created human beings, Genesis 1.28, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that is on the earth. And God said, Behold, I am giving you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. See, God gives all the good things of creation to His people for our use. 
And what's given to us by God is to be used in accordance with His purposes, both for our enjoyment and to serve others. And it's interesting, the first sin, that first sin in the garden was many things, right? It was a, you know, not believing God's word, listening to the lies of the devil, disobeying an express command, rebelling against his rule. But one thing almost certainly was that it's most basic, it was a sin of theft. Because God had given man and woman the use of the garden, but he had told them that one particular tree in the garden they were not to take from. Genesis 2:15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So what did Adam and Eve do? They saw the fruit on the tree and they decided, I want it. I've been given all these other things, but the one thing that God has said, this is mine, not for you to use. And they said, I want it, and therefore they took it. The first sin was a sin of stealing from God. And when we covet our neighbor's property and the things which God has given to our neighbor, we are not just sinning against our neighbor, but we are sinning against God. How so, you may ask? Well, because we're saying that God, I think that you should have given what you've given them to me instead. We're showing our dissatisfaction with how God has blessed others. I mean, children, you know, at Christmas, uh, you know, assuming you don't get coal in your stocking, you, you know, you will be hopefully given gifts. And maybe if you have brothers and sisters, your, your brother might uh, get a gift that you really wish your parents had given to you instead. And what would it be like if you set, went up and grabbed that gift from your brother and said, This is mine. Now, you would not only be sinning against your brother or sister in taking that thing which had been given to them, but you'd be sinning and showing disrespect to your parents who had decided in their generosity to give this particular gift to to them and not to you. Stealing is a great sign of ungratefulness to our God. So the Bible has a lot to say about how we are to view our possessions as gifts from God and that we should seek to preserve and protect and regard as rightfully belonging the things to others, those that God has given to them. In a sense, the Bible comes into conflict with two of the major uh, economic systems of our day, using like the two extremes. First, the Bible uh, is against the idea of you know, complete communism. The idea that all property, uh, that there is no such thing as private property, that all property ultimately belongs to the state. And the state is the one who decides this is yours and this is uh, someone else's. In fact, rather, the Scripture commands us to seek to further our own wealth. Uh, the, our shorter catechism summarizes the teaching of this commandment thusly. The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. Part of the command is to seek to provide for yourself, 
to seek to further your own estate through the means that God has provided. The, uh, and we do this in order that we wouldn't steal. Because like, if, if you don't work for yourself, if you're not going to starve, the only way that you can procure for yourself is to, is to steal. And so in order to avoid stealing, we are to seek to work for ourselves that we may not be a burden on others and, and may have something to share with others. A couple of verses from the New Testament that highlight this. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs and work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In 2 Thessalonians 3, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear there are some among you who walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So the Bible clearly has a sense that there is such a thing as private property and that work is a good gift and we are called to seek to further and provide for ourselves through the labor that God has given us. But on the other hand, the Bible comes into conflict with the, what we could call it on the other side of it, unfettered capitalism, which says that greed is good and you should seek to get the better of your opponents in the capital, capitalist marketplace. You've got to break a few eggs to make an omelet and your main focus is on furthering your own wealth regardless of the effects it might have on others. But the Bible says that when we engage in business, when we seek to work, we need to no less be thinking about our own good, our own benefit, but also be thinking about the benefit of our neighbor as we engage in business. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism, a catechism of a fellow Reformed church, puts it this way, summarizing again what this commandment requires. What does God require of you in this commandment? Answer that I do, do whatever I can for my neighbor's good, and I treat others as I would like them to treat me, and that I, and that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. That language should sound familiar to you, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me. That's you know, what Jesus teaches in the New Testament, which is frequently called the Golden Rule. And the Heidelberg Catechism says that this command not to steal as you kind of unpack it is applying the golden rule to our business practices, applying the golden rule to our neighbor's property. We should treat others in business as we would like to be treated. Often when we're working with our children, trying to teach them not to grab a toy from someone, what do we tell them? We say, do you, you know, when this kid grabs something from somebody, we come and say, do you like it when people grab from you? And the child will say, no. Well, then you should love your friend or your brother or your sister enough not to grab from them. We're teaching them the golden rule in that instance. We should treat others as we would like to be treated. And so it is in our own business practices. This command not to steal has both a negative and a positive aspect. The negative is don't take. 
The positive is, seek the good of your neighbor. John Calvin, commenting on this passage, says, Our neighbor's advantage should be promoted no less than our own. Be careful lest you take away your neighbor's goods from him. Look out that you don't gain profit at your fellow man's expense. And you can see how that goes against some of the spirit that we've frequently proclaimed in our modern economic system. That what do we do? We were trying to one up. We were trying to get the better, oftentimes, of others in our business transactions. But the call of the gospel is to seek the good of our neighbor, even in our business. When we buy, when we sell, we're not to think merely of taking advantage of our neighbor, but the good of our neighbor. And this applies to those of us who are employers or customers or suppliers. Business and work are good things. Profit is a good thing, but must be done in a way that keeps with the command of Jesus to love our neighbor. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about unjust business practices. Uh, Deuteronomy 24.5 says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Now, we probably know that passage more from the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul says, don't you realize what that passage is really about? Sure, it's about, you know, actually, you know, protecting your animal, but that's not the main point. It's actually about how you treat your fellow human beings. Not muzzling the ox means that those who labor should participate and share in the fruits of their labor. You must treat your employees or those who work for you fairly. And in regarding and protecting the property of others, this even applies to our enemies. Exodus 23, just a ch- chapter, couple chapters later, as he's kind of unpacking the, the Ten Commandments in different case study examples, God says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Even loving your enemies. And loving your enemies by loving and regarding their property as belonging to them and seeking to preserve and protect even your enemies' property. And in fact, in the business, in the the economic system of the Old Testament, even as they were to engage in the, you know, the main economic activity of that time was farming, and even as they were to engage in those farming practices, they were to do so in a way that protected those who could not provide for themselves, for the helpless and the poor and the widow and the orphan in the land. So if you were a farmer, then one of the commands was that you were not to harvest the edges of your property. If you were to go through and harvest your, your olive trees or your grapevines, you were to not pick them totally clean. But you were to leave some that those who were uh, destitute could come and provide for themselves. They should, in the way you love your neighbor, is you provide for them, even in your business, for those who have nothing. But notice even in this kind of, you could call it Old Testament welfare, even in this, there was an understanding is that, that you didn't give a handout, but they were to come and be able to, re- to labor to receive, but you were to do so and not seek to further your wealth at the sake of the destitution of others. But not only are we to acquire our wealth in godly ways, looking to our neighbor's advantage, 
But Scripture teaches that we are to be very generous with the wealth that God has given us, with those who cannot help themselves. In fact, when we hoard or waste what God has given us, we are in a sense stealing from God. We're stealing from God because God has given us our wealth with a purpose. He's given us, said, here's why I've given this to you. And the two reasons are to provide for you and your blessing and enjoyment and the enjoyment of your descendants, and that you may serve and help those and others to have something to share with others. Uh, Philip Ryken, uh, quoting Jerry Bridges, observes that there are three basic attitudes we can take towards our possessions. The first says, what's mine, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. You know, that's the, uh, the creed of the thief. The second is, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. And since we are selfish by nature, that's the attitude most people have most of the time. The third attitude, the godly attitude, says, what's mine is God's, I'll share it. We need to remember that all our gifts and our talents, our health, our resources, are gifts from God. The whole earth is the Lord's. And all we have been given is to be used for His purposes. And part of His purpose in blessing you is that you may be a blessing to others. Now, before I go into more talking about generosity, it's important to say here, again, that one of the purposes that God has given you, the things He's given you, is for your own enjoyment. In the Old Testament, the command to feast is a command Right? We're commanded to feast. God commands you, says, one of the reasons I've given you what I've given you is for you and for you to enjoy and enjoy fully. Uh, the theologian uh, Jacob Duma says that, we, that this command to enjoy and to feast means that we can enjoy and participate in the blessings God's given us without a sense of aftertaste of guilt. We can enjoy with a free heart the blessings that God has given us. You can enjoy that Thanksgiving meal to its fullest um, because God has given you what he's given you for your blessing and good. And I know some of us need to hear this. Some of us might feel guilty about actually enjoying the gifts God has given us. And that's, that's something that maybe some of you need to hear. But I think what a lot of us need to hear is that we also need to be challenged and ask whether we are enjoying the gifts that God's given us or squandering and wasting them. Because again, part of the purpose in blessing you is that you may be a blessing to others. Uh, Ephesians 4.28 Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. When we selfishly hoard or waste God's gifts, we are stealing from God. As Philip Reichen, again, commenting on this passage, quoting from the 4th century preacher John Chrysostom. Chrysostom was the, uh, the patriarch of Constantinople, the uh, most wealthy city in the ancient world, and he was the, the pastor of the biggest church in that world, like the, the emperor and all the upper crust and nobility would come to this church. And he would preach a lot about the extravagance he saw. He says, this is wasting the gifts God has given you. And his kind of speaking against this extravagance eventually got him exiled and, and killed um, by the emperor. But he said, preaching to this congregation, 
He said, this is also theft, not to share one's possessions. Now perhaps this statement seems surprising to you, but do not be surprised. Just as an official in the imperial treasury, if he neglects to distribute when he is ordered, but spends instead for his own indolence, pays the penalty and is put to death. So also the rich man is a kind of steward of the money which is owed for the distribution to the poor. He is directed to distribute it to his fellow servants who are in want. So if he spends more on himself than his needs require, he will pay the harshest penalty hereafter. For his own goods are not his own, but belong to his fellow servants. I beg you, remember this without fail, that not to share our own wealth with the poor is theft from the poor and deprivation of their means of life. We do not possess our own wealth, but theirs. So this challenging message towards a radical generosity, where does this come from in the Christian life? Well, we are called to be radically generous, to not only not steal, but to seek to further the wealth of others, and to seek to love our neighbor, even to help those who cannot help themselves, because that's exactly what Christ did for us. Because that's the message of Christmas. Ephesians 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are called to radical generosity because what did we do? We earned something. We earned wages. We worked hard and earned wages. But what's the wages that we earned through our own rebellion against God? The wages that we earned through our sin is death. We racked up a debt which we cannot possibly ever repay. But God in His great mercy gives the great gift of salvation to His people, paying that debt we could not possibly repay. Our Savior did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but became man in order to rescue His people from greed and selfishness. And it's interesting that if you look at the, at the, the way redemption is described in the New Testament, it's actually often, often borrows language of economics to describe our own salvation. You know, that language of wages of sin is death. Or what do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts. Right? Forgive us our spiritual debts which we cannot repay. And we are to forgive others their spiritual debts which they cannot repay to us. We're to have this forgiving attitude. We doubly owe God everything. He's given us everything in creation. And then when we have earned wages of death, He gives us the gift of Himself and His Son in redemption. Second Corinthians 8. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. This is our spiritual salvation. He has paid that unpayable debt for us. And out of gratitude for what God has done for us, we are called to then with our material resources also have an attitude of generosity towards others in imitation of what our Savior did for us. 
Let me close with a line from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank You that You did unto us as we did not deserve in Jesus Christ. That You sent Your own Son to become poor for our sake, that we might become spiritually rich. And Lord, I pray that we will have this same attitude towards others. That we will do unto others in our business and with our resources as You have done unto us. Lord, help us not to have a mine attitude, but have an attitude that says, all that I have is from God, so I want to use it for His purposes. May we enjoy the gifts and blessings of the work, of the, the work You've given us and the wealth You've given us in thankfulness to You and enjoy it without aftertaste. And may, Lord, we have a gracious, generous spirit May You help us to think about how we can love our neighbor even as we're buying and selling and working, Lord. That we will do unto others in their stuff as You have done unto us. We pray all these things in the name of our great and humble Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.